Daniel 7. We're about to shift, folks. We're going to shift our focus. And this is a very important juncture of the, the book of Daniel. We're moving uh, from a chronological order or kind of a historical march chronologically through the life of Daniel. Remember, as we talked about in Daniel chapter 6 last week, that Daniel was in his 80s when he was in the lion's den. And so we've kind of walked through Daniel's life and highlighted some key moments, some things that God used him for in exile. And now we're going to go back in time. And the reason we're going to go back in time is because beginning in chapter 7, we're getting into the prophetic section of Daniel. We're going to talk more about the visions that God gave him and how they apply to history, to Daniel's present, and to the future. Things that he saw that we can now look back and see, and things that are coming forward, and what's the point is something that we will ask ourselves often. What is the point of biblical prophecy? What is its intent for us. And it's interesting, one commentator said that Daniel chapter 7 should be labeled an essential guide to biblical prophecy, because it really lays the groundwork for how we look at it and how we study it. I I thought that was a really good explanation. And so the events of Daniel's life, continuing through chapter 6, brought us through the reigns of three kings, three key leaders, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. But here the nature of the material changes, and we're going to go back to the reign of Belshazzar now. Before the Medo-Persians come in and take over Babylon, we're now in the time frame of Belshazzar's reign. And so even though we have had in the past visions in chapters 2 and 4, both of those were given to Nebuchadnezzar, and both of them were either interpreted and explained to him or revealed and then explained to him. All of those came through Daniel by the power of the Lord. But those visions were given to Nebuchadnezzar himself. The following visions are given directly to Daniel, and they're intended to give us hope. Biblical prophecy should give us hope and encouragement through varying detail because they reveal that God is in control of history and Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, will establish a kingdom that will fill the whole earth in the end. You know, we take that so in stride. I just said that Jesus is going to rule and reign here forevermore, 100% fact, and we all sat there like, mm-hmm. Thank you. And you're not cheering for me, but it is worth a whoop or two because you guys, we're so used to hearing, but are we really believing? We're so used to hearing the truth, but do we really believe that what God says is going to happen will absolutely 100% happen? Does it excite you when you look at our government, when you look at our world today to think of Jesus ruling and reigning? That is gets me excited. And it's not my job to hoorah you every week, but I hope that I can give you a little bit of excitement to look at this and go, what a mess. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming back and he's going to rule and reign. And you have, I have, we don't have any idea how good it's going to be when Jesus is on the throne. That's what we long for. And it should give us some excitement. It should wake us up. And Daniel's chapter 7 through 12 are intended to give us this hope. This reminder of the sovereignty of God as the theme of Daniel will continue on talking about how he is sovereign over human kingdoms. And now he's going to do that through the power of prophetic vision. So let us remember that prophecy rightly understood will give glory to God rather than men and will give those who belong to him strength to trust and hope in the coming kingdom of God. And I'll add another thing, a third thing. It will empower us to preach. Not preach prophecy. Prophecy empowers us to preach the gospel. 
prophecy empowers us to preach the gospel to a world because we've already seen the end. We already know how it's going to end up. And that vision of the end, that vision of, it, of its fulfillment is what empowers us to reach other people, not fill our heads with knowledge, not fill our heads with what we think is going to happen. We look at how God outlines these things and it empowers us to preach truth and to call people to salvation. Amen? That's what we're here to call people to is salvation. This should give us a love and a passion for people and to see that all of us are on a timer right now. Remember, remember those little egg timers? You hear? Your mom would like turn it and be like, when that goes off, pull the cookies out of the oven. And then you play video games and forgotten and almost burn the house down. <laughs> I'm not speaking from personal experience. But what's interesting is like we are on that little timer. And here's the thing. My death is my ding. Right? <laughs> There's a shirt. My death is my bing. I'm done. That's it. My time's up. I don't know how long that timer's set for. I just hear it in the kitchen going off. And I don't know how long it's set for. And so my point is this, am I paying attention to what's going on in my life, to the indicators, or am I so lost in wasting time that when it goes off, I won't even, you know, I'm not saying you won't notice your own death. You'll probably get, will notice. But, but the whole point is like, am I, am I missing the point? Am I lost in the point here? Am I lost in, in, in the things that I want to do rather than doing what I should be doing? Prophecy gives us clear vision of God's end. It gives us clear vision of what he is going to do so that he can be glorified. And so my life stays on track. There's a reason he gave us prophecy and it's not to glorify any of us. It's not to impress anybody. It's to drive us to reach the lost. And so let's get after it. Even when we read things that sound difficult and hard for us, we must remember the words of Jesus to his disciples on the night he'll be betrayed. When you look at John from the Gospel of John, chapters 13, all the way through 17, beginning with him washing their feet and then going all the way until he prays the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And he is not telling them things that are easy. He's washing their feet. That's a gross job. He's teaching them to do that for each other. And then he starts teaching them about what they're about to do, what's about to happen. And then he tells them, stop arguing amongst yourselves about who's greater. I'm amongst you as a servant. And on and on the lessons go until Jesus comes to the end of that section right before he prays over them and leaves for the Garden of Gethsemane. And in John 16:33, he says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Jesus didn't leave them with all this weight, with all of this reality and say, have fun. Try not to get depressed. What does he tell them? He says, I've told you these things so that you would have peace. He reveals his word to us so that we have peace because we recognize that he has already seen this through to the end. That God is sovereign over it all. He says, you're going to have suffering, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. The world has not conquered Jesus. Why do we live sometimes getting depressed by the things of the world as if the world had somehow found a way to conquer Jesus? And in fact, the amazing picture that we'll see in Daniel 7, I'm just building you up for it, is when they look at God, when Daniel sees God in his throne room, God's going to say, bring this court to order. And no one's going to stop him. You know why? He's in charge. He's calling the shots. I'm not. No human being is calling the shots. The kingdoms of men can't even stand up to him. We should just get into it. What do you say? Like, well, it's about time. Daniel 7. 
You know, I used to rip on pastors that had really long introductions. <laughs> I understand. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. Let's read the first six verses, and then we'll, we'll break it down. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here's the summary of his account. <clears throat> Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. These creatures are not quite normal, church. There's something weird and distinct about each of them. We'll get into that. Now, this is a, a reminder from uh, Pastor BJ's message from Daniel 5. Belshazzar became co-regent with uh, Nabonidus in about 553 B.C., and so when we're talking about the time frame, it's important to understand. I like highlighting, you've probably noticed this, highlighting what age Daniel is when these things are happening. Probably around 15 years old when he went into exile, give or take. And so if you give that the time it's given to 553 BC, he's about 67 to 70 years old when this happens. So we're still in the latter portion of his life, and, and we can't really angle out just how close this is to the Medo-Persians taking over, but it's in the near future. It's in the near future, but Belshazzar is still reigning. And so, before we get into too much detail on the vision, we need to notice that this vision parallels another. This vision parallels chapter 2. The vision that we see in Daniel chapter 2, when you look at the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw there, and we're really going to line this out to look at it clearly, these two are running parallel, but what we have here is a different point of view of the same thing. We're seeing it from a different point of view, and we're given a lot more detail and a lot more further detail down the road for what I believe is a future prophecy not yet happened. So the vision of the statue, as you look at Daniel chapter 2, and there'll be some things on the screen behind you, not like pictures, but like some outline. The vision of the statue had four distinct elements from Daniel 2. It had the head of gold, you remember, had the chest and arms of silver, it had the stomach and thighs of bronze, and it had the legs of iron. We're going to talk about the feet and the toes that are iron mixed with clay later. But those were another aspect of that statue. However, those are the four primary parts that we're going to talk about today. So just as we're told in Daniel 2, the vision, we're told here in chapter 7 and verse 17, if you peek ahead from where we read, in verse 17 it says, These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. And so he tells us, this is kind of what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with four kings that come from the earth. So what follows is flowing parallel to chapter 2, but we're going to be given more detail. And you'll notice that this isn't a statue like it was in Daniel 2. Rather, we're talking about beasts now. We're talking about beasts, okay? And it's interesting and fascinating because I asked the question. I was that kid that asked weird questions, you know, in Sunday school. Like the teacher, why do you wear so much makeup? You know, and she's like, shh, just listen to the lesson. You know, like I, I just, I asked weird questions as a kid. The first thing that came to my mind when I looked at this is why is it beasts now when it was an image earlier? Why is this a parallel thing, but it was, it was an image prior and now we're looking at these beasts and I think it's pretty clear. Often, especially when you think about that dream coming to Nebuchadnezzar, 
often men view the kingdoms of men very differently than God views them. Nebuchadnezzar sees this thing as something powerful. This is something he would associate with. We see an image like that as the power of men. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, you know, these, these strong things that we build weapons with and we build cities with and we're like, yeah, that's the picture of strength, right? This image that was probably very imposing and this is strong and it was terrifying to Nebuchadnezzar when he saw it. How does God see them? How does God see the kingdoms of men as beasts, as creatures. Now, the reason I think that's fascinating is because did you notice something that every single one of these creatures has in common? It's a grotesque, um, what's, what's the way I would say it? Disfigurement of God's created way. Each of these has aspects to it that are a disfigurement from God's natural created thing. We know what a lion looks like, right? We've seen them on TV. I've seen them in person. They're way more fierce in person. I tell you, when you've been like 100 yards away from lions ripping a carcass apart, it rattles you a little bit. That's some power. That's some fear. But we know what these animals look like in reality, right? Bye, Todd. <laughs> Love you guys. We, we know what these look like in reality, okay? We, we know what they look like in reality, but when we see them from God's point of view, in, in the picture of the kingdoms of men, we're seeing them disfigured, And they don't look like God's design at all anymore. Isn't that like human beings? Isn't that like what we do? We disfigure God's natural design as we seek to attack and devour each other. But God shows something very, very interesting about us in this picture. We are finite. We are finite and our time comes to an end. The best thing that we can build, it won't last up like a giant image. In fact, he even showed it with a picture of the image with the feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. Two things that wouldn't mix together. They're naturally destabilized. In fact, all that would take to knock over that image was a push, but, but by a mass, by, you know, by a rock. But, but what's interesting, you know what I'm talking about if you read Daniel 2. Here in Daniel 7, we see that these beasts are coming and going because their time comes to an end. They're temporary. They are temporary. They're finite. And this is how God sees it. This is from God's point of view. They're not beautiful and glorious and this massive thing. He looks at them and says, this is an atrocity. It's something that's apart from the way he created it to be. It's the disintegration of man's sin. And they'll come. And they'll go. Did you hear that? The strongest kingdoms of men will come and they will go. American church, we will come as Americans and we will go. But that is not how we define ourselves, is it? Who do we belong to, church? Jesus, because we have a heavenly kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. You guys, we have to make these lines clear in our hearts. We have to make these things clear. We belong to Jesus. Our allegiance is to Jesus. He didn't say your citizenship is wherever you were born. In fact, Paul, who was a Roman citizen and was also fully Jewish, he goes, listen, our citizenship church, when he wrote in Philippians, he goes, is in heaven. Don't get tied up here. We don't belong here. We belong with the Lord. And so don't get so tied up in the fate of things here. Does it matter? Sure it matters. We should speak to it. But our hope and our peace and our lives are not tied into this. Our eternal lives are in who? 
They're in church. Who are our lives tied up in? Christ. They're in Jesus. What do we have to fear? What do we have to fear? Nothing. Because if he is for us, it doesn't matter who is against us. Amen? Stand strong in that church. This is going to give us hope in trying times ahead. This is going to give us steadfastness in trying times ahead. I am no predictor of the future, but I'll tell you what. Sin will continue until Jesus reigns. You can bet on that. And you can bet that everything, as we look at biblical biblical prophecy, is marching towards his endgame. It's marching towards the Lord finishing everything. And we've, we've got this cool thing. I don't know if you're that type of person, if you're that sick type of person that turns to the end of the book and reads the last chapter. That's disgusting. You shouldn't do that. You know, you get your novel and you're like, and then there were none. I mean, let's just find out how they all get there. You know, that's really going to spoil the book. Okay, you shouldn't do that. But, but think about this, though. Think about this. The Lord, <laughs> he's already told us, right? It's not cheating when he just puts it in the text. You're like, wait a second, God wins? That's great. <laughs> Maybe we should read the Bible like children more. Maybe we should read it with the simplicity. The kid is like, God wins. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's really stinking cool. We should be excited that God wins because we can look outside our windows and be like, the world's winning. Sin is winning. Things are happening all around us that we don't want because as Christians, we don't like it. It's against God. And we're like, how is this world still here? And he's like, because I said so. Because he is literally holding the molecules together. He is holding our matter together right now. And I really wish with all my heart that when it was my time, he would stop. That that's how I would die. Because that would be cool. Especially if I was in the pulpit. Amen. And it's gone. Like completely evacuated. Not in that way. But you know, like disintegrated. I don't want to evacuate in front of the church. (laughs) uh we'll never get that out of the rug okay so in in um verse two (laughs) see you see why i enjoy hanging out with you guys so much this is fun verse two daniel said in my vision at night i was watching and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea i'm not going to go into that in great detail but i encourage you to do word studies on the sea things that emerge from the sea in old testament and also on the four winds blowing, you'll see this type of terminology repeated again in Revelation. It's symbolic. We don't have time because I'm taking too much time. Four huge beasts come up from the sea. That's This is the point. Each different from the other. So we look at the first one. Let's kind of break these down. Connecting the gold head or here the lion to Nebuchadnezzar is not a stretch at all. Look at the details of the text. Look at verse 4. The first was like a lion but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Now think about this. This is fascinating stuff. Lions don't have wings. We should be very thankful, yes? (laughs) You go to visit Africa and there's some flying lions. You're going to have a bad afternoon. So here's the thing. We should be very thankful that this is is showing us something else. But, But here's the point. Think about this. If you're thinking about in the context of Nebuchadnezzar, And this is running parallel with the golden head picture from Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar, remember that whole thing that happened in Daniel 4? 
where he was reduced to this animal state because of his pride. And he crawled around on all fours and ate grass and his, you know, he had large talons and his, he had like feathers on him and stuff. His hair grew out like feathers. It's really gross. We talked about the, the situation that, you know, the, the, the medical situation that can happen in this. And so you think about how that's like someone being reduced down to the ground on all fours, right? Literally. At seven years, what happened? Nebuchadnezzar repented and the Lord did what? Raised him back up. Restored his mind. Look at that verse again, verse 4. I continue watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. You think Daniel's not connecting that? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, okay. First beast, Babylon. Second. Look at verse 5. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. Now, if you understand that you're talking about nations that come after the other and you're connecting those nations to the vision from Daniel chapter two, immediately you have a suspicion, right? What's your suspicion? Huh? Medo-Persian empire, empire, right? Medo-Persian empire. Because we know that's who comes in. Belshazzar, remember Daniel's having this vision during Belshazzar's reign. This is the nation. This bear is the one that's going to come in and take over. They're the the next one in line. And we know that Daniel and the lion's den happened under the rule of the Medo-Persian empire. And so the chest and arms of silver, the bear is Medo-Persia. Well, how would we connect that in its own way? We can look and say, well, it's the next one in line for the vision in Daniel 2. How do we connect it here? Fascinatingly enough... We notice the three ribs in its teeth. I don't know about you guys, but getting me to stop at three ribs is hard. But I want you to think about this. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm not, but I, yeah. So uh, the three ribs, right? They're in its teeth, and it's encouraged to gorge on flesh. Now think about this. As we look back in history, we fill in a lot of these blanks. The Medo-Persian Empire conquered the Lydian Kingdom in Asia Minor, which fell to Cyrus in 546, considered their first great conquest. Number two, the Chaldean or Babylonian Empire fell in 539. By the way, that's about four years after this. And three, the kingdom of Egypt fell to Cambyses in 525. These are considered to, by historic accounts as the three great conquests of the Medo-Persian Empire. Three ribs in its mouth. These are the giant conquests that gave them their established domain. Now, the Medo-Persians did devour much flesh on the battlefield, battlefield, but their reign came to an end and a kingdom emerged after them, after the bear, that was defined by its speed. Who are you thinking of? Who are you thinking of when it comes to conquering the known world at great speed, very, very quickly? Who? Alexander the Great, which is the Greek empire, right? And so the next animal comes onto the scene, comes forth, And this is in verse six. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard speed people with four wings. That's fast leopard. What's worse than a regular leopard? We had again, it's just like the lion one with wings. Stop giving wings to these predators, please. And so four wings on it, wings of a bird and on its back, it said it had four heads and was given dominion Four heads. So let's start with Alexander the Great, what we know about him. And again, we're connecting this to the stomach and thighs of bronze now. This is flowing in succession and showing us both the priority and the ability and the destabilizing effect. And so the stomach and thighs of bronze, this time shown as leopard, 
Four wings means speed. Four heads means divided. And like a swiftly running leopard, if you think about it, Alexander won the empire in one extended campaign. He won the Greek empire in one run. I mean, he was conquering one right after another. He was so bloodthirsty that at the end of his reign, before he died, he was said to have wept because there was no kingdoms left to conquer. He wept because he ran out of real estate. Just like all the North Idahoans right now. But you guys, if you think about this, within, the, within a few years of his death in, in 323 BC, the kingdom fractured. Kingdom fractured into how many parts? How many heads were there? Four. Four generals. Fractured into four parts. Greece and Macedonia went under, underneath Antipater. Thrace and Asia Minor under Lysimachus. 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 Name your kid that, please. Lysimachus. I don't know what you call him for short. What'd you call him for? Mucus? Okay. So, <laughs> number three, Asia, except Asia Minor and Palestine under Seleucus, and Egypt and Palestine went under Ptolemy. And so we had four generals that took over, the four heads. So not only did it have this rapid conquering, Alexander the Great, but the four heads were four generals that took over. We're going to get into that in a little bit more detail in Daniel chapter 8. So we have the first three beasts. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on them because in the interpretation later on, Daniel doesn't really ask about those. He asks about the, about the interpretation for what this means. An angel's going to talk to him about it and say like, hey, these are all kingdoms of men. But Daniel's going to go, tell me about this fourth beast. And this becomes the focus here for a moment. It's not the point. It's not the big point of the chapter, but it comes our focus for a moment. Look at verse seven. After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. What were the legs made of in the vision in Daniel 2? Iron. Large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed. It trampled with its feet. Whatever was left, it was different from all the beasts before, and it had ten horns. Now, this is fascinating stuff. It's different. Did you know something about this beast? What kind of a creature is it? First one was a what? Lion. Second was a bear. Third was a leopard. What's the fourth? Doesn't say. Interesting. You know the saying, this is a whole different animal? It's exactly what we're looking at here. This is a whole different animal. We had lion, bear, and leopard with unique, tra- unique traits about them. But here, the only thing we know about this beast is that it's frightening, it's dreadful, it's incredibly strong, and has iron teeth. Clearly the iron teeth, I believe, are tying our thoughts to Daniel 2, where Rome is represented by these legs of iron. We're talking about a Roman empire. Rome dominated in a way that had never been seen before. When you go to Israel to visit, what you're going to be walking around in is Roman ruins. You're walking around in Roman ruins. You're going to see so much of the Roman period when you go there because Rome, and and you're in Israel. They dominated the known world so powerfully that their influence is still spread all over the landscape. Their, Their reign and their reach went from the Atlantic Ocean to the Caspian Sea, from North Africa to the Rhine and Danube rivers. Even Egypt, Palestine, and Syria were under Roman domination. All of these areas. It's a massive expanse. And they ruled unyieldingly. They chomped up anyone who got in their way. 
stamp them into the dust. Even when we read through the gospel accounts, we know that Jesus, speaking of what was going to come, said, these stones are all going to not be left upon themselves. Why? Because in 70 AD, Rome was done with the Jewish rebellion and they crushed Jerusalem to the ground. To the ground. The idea that we're to comprehend here is there was nothing like the Roman Empire that had been seen yet. They hadn't seen anything like this yet. Now think about this. Daniel's writing in 535. He's, or 539. It was one of the two. I think it was 539. He's writing in, five, in the 500 BC era. He hasn't seen this yet. He hasn't seen that happen. We have the beauty of looking back and looking at the Roman Empire and going, okay, connecting it. What's up with these 10 horns? What's up with these 10 horns? This is fascinating stuff. Before we, we get too much into those 10 horns, here's Daniel living in this situation, seeing all this vision, and God showing him how frail even the strongest of kingdoms can be. And for us reading, as soon as we see this, as soon as we see this, we need to think about who's in charge. We need to think about how powerful these things look like because we're looking at this beast with Daniel right now going, that is intimidating. And yet again, what Daniel is about to see is going to put it in perspective because we know that these horns are going to be intimidating and what's happening on this fourth beast is crazy and it's going to draw his attention, but something happens in between. He's going to ask for interpretation on the other side. No, we're not doing the whole chapter, by the way. There's no way because we really need to get into detail about this fourth beast. But here's the thing. Daniel is seeing this and he says this in verse eight, read with me verses eight through 12. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. Suddenly in his, in this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. Check out verse nine, you guys. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched them because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. Now, you'll remember that we only got through the legs of iron, right? Talk about Rome and the legs of iron. What about those iron mixed with clay feet and toes? It's interesting, if we had a little poll, most likely if we all took our shoes and socks off right now, we would all be able to count 10 of our own toes, correct? How many horns are there? 10. What do you think this is correlating to? We're talking about that iron mixed with clay. We're talking about those toes. We're talking about those feet. That's the correlating piece from Daniel 2. What's interesting about this, you guys, is this is a kingdom that's forthcoming that we have not seen yet. I believe as we look at Revelation, we have strong examples of how that is to be, and it's something that's destabilized at its core but has some of that strength built into it. It has some of those Roman aspects about it. Have we seen it since? I don't believe we have. I think we're talking about something that's still coming. I think we're talking about something down the road, and I'll show you why more next week. As Daniel's considering these horns, 
he's looking at him and that's bothering him, right? So as I considered the horns, like that's odd. Something about them draws his eye. This little horn comes up amongst them and it uproots three of them. And the term little horn, by the way, represents a king who starts small. Little horn is a term you would use for that. He starts out small, but he grows in power to uproot three of these and is becoming something altogether freakish and weird. It is the day after Halloween, but this is pretty Halloween-esque. With the eyes like the eyes of a human, they start popping out on this thing. Okay, you're telling me that this is the part where you start losing your cool a little bit. First of all, this thing is really frightening, weird, and, and not just its own creature. Now it's got a miniature horn that's sprouting eyes. Yeah, that's sci-fi. And so he's watching this happen. Now think about this. In the, in the idea of symbolism, we understand that this is indicating something. And I believe this indicates like a shrewdness or a cunning. This horn has an ability that the others do not have. It has abilities that the other do not have. And so when you look at this, it starts developing a mouth on it too. It starts talking smack. Right? And it says it's speaking arrogantly. Do you want to know what it was saying? Look at verse 25. Skip ahead for a second. Verse 25 says this. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws. The Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Now, what's interesting is some people will try and say this was a character in history. I understand the time period they're talking about. We can talk about that next week more in detail. But I believe this indicates something that hasn't happened yet. I think this is the Antichrist in Daniel 7. And we'll talk about that more next week. This is a picture of what's coming in the end, of what's going to happen. And this horn isn't talking smack about just anything. It's blaspheming God. It's blaspheming God. We'll spend our study next week with Daniel as he gets some clarification in the latter part of this chapter about the fourth beast. We'll build that a little bit more. But for now, let's just continue focusing on something that happens here. And this is why this is two studies, you guys. You can't just blow by what happens in verse 9. And next week, not only are we going to talk about that little horn, we can't blow by what happens in verses 13 and 14. Because so often we're so caught up in what does this prophecy mean? Why does it say How do we know this to be sure? And we get all caught up in those things instead of seeing God Almighty himself and Jesus in the same chapter. In the same chapter. And I want you to think about this. In Daniel 7, we just take this stuff for granted as Christians. Oh, look, it's God. It's Jesus. That's pretty cool. Daniel is seeing something profound. He is seeing something incredible. And he is seeing God the Father and God the Son interact in the heavens. He's watching this happen. How can we not do due diligence? So let's just take a second. And focus on verses 9 through 12. We're going to get through all this by the time we get through it next week. But we can't miss this. Look at this. Verse 9 is, I kept watching. Remember, that mouth is speaking arrogantly and those little weird-eyed horn thing is just acting up. And verse 9 it says this, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place. Think about that statement. Thrones were set in place. Who establishes these thrones? God does. And do you notice who sits down? Don't you love the epic nature of this? Look at this. The Ancient of Days took his seat. I mean, it's like C.S. Lewis wrote it or something, right? And he's like, here comes the Ancient of Days. What does that communicate to us about God? He had no beginning. And he has no end. 
And these little critters that are running around are before him. He is going to sit on his throne. Is there any doubt in your mind for one second who's in charge? In this scenario, it's not men. It's not human beings. It's not any other creature. The Ancient of Days is 100% in charge of this situation. That's a lesson in and of itself. Now look at the rest. This is so epic. This is likely paralleling Revelation 4 and 5 here in these verses because we see the throne room of God who's described as Ancient of Days. So epic. And we're meant to grasp the eternality of his name. The whole sense we're to get here is we're looking at this. Wow, God has been in control this whole time. He has been in control this entire time. None of this was out of his reach. Church, this is the end. We have not reached the end. Here we stand and God is still in control. Amen. He is not powerless. He is 100% in control. You can go, well, then how do you explain mm, sin? But, but here, here's what I would say. As the church, I think we're struggling with this. As the church, I think we're struggling with what we see happening in our nation because we have forgotten what it's like to live outside of this nation. We have forgotten that the most powerful works of God right now of revival, I believe, are not happening here. I think they're happening in persecuted nations. I think they're happening where Christians are being slaughtered for their faith. And do you know what that means for us? We are not affected when our freedoms are taken away because you can't take Jesus out of the hearts of his church. Even if our physical freedoms are removed, church, God can still get his work done. Look at exile. Look at Daniel. He's the perfect picture of it. And here he sees God seated on this throne and says, wow, this is the best that human kingdoms could throw at God. This is the best they could come up with. And God's sitting on his throne going, bring it to order, everyone. And there's all these tens of thousands there that are worshiping him. And we see this parallel of Revelation 1, 12 through 20 as the description of God is given. I encourage you to read Revelation 1 and this passage again and see how alike the description of Jesus in Revelation 1 and here in Daniel 7, the description of God is. It's powerful connection. I can't go down that road, but it's awesome. We have a similar description of the throne on wheels from Ezekiel chapter 1. And the point, here's the point. The reader is to understand God's holiness. When you see the fire, when you see this holiness, you're thinking of how powerful God is and how pure he is. And then the wheels, you see these wheels on his throne. You're meant to understand that God works in an opportune way in our world that we can't understand. He moves and goes where he chooses. He does things that he chooses to do. It shows that God is above our ability and above our understanding. And how many times have we struggled with understanding what in the world God is doing? And we see these pictures of God. God's like, I do what I do. That's my call. Will you trust me? Do you trust me to do what's good? Do you trust him to do what's right? Or do we question God when we look at our lives and wonder why in the world he's operating in the way he is? We cannot ask those questions. When we look at God in true form, all we learn is to trust. God is in charge and the court is convened with him on the throne. And that beast, remember the beast? The one that was really terrifying, right? The one that was beyond description because it doesn't really have a creature of its own. Terrifying, frightening, strong, chomping, iron teeth, devouring and trampling, anything that wants to stand against it, it's just doing whatever it wants 
bearing this horn that's talking trash about God, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to burning fire. Do you know what I like about that passage? It doesn't say how. It doesn't even tell us how. Do you ever look and go, how did he do it? Did God just like drop kick him? You know, and it's gone. It doesn't say that. Why? He doesn't have to say it. God doesn't have to say it. He wants it done. It's done. When he says it's done, it's done. That's that. The best that kings, kingdoms of human beings can throw at God are done away like that. And the theme of Daniel repeats again. God is sovereign. He is all powerful. The rest of the beasts, it says, meaning the previous three kingdoms, they'll continue to exist, but their dominion has been removed and their days are numbered. Their dominion is removed. And you look and you go, oh, we can really kind of watch this play out as we understand Revelation. We'll talk about that more again next week. I'm teasing it a lot because I really want to see you guys next week. But here's the thing. We're going to take a look at that interpretation that's given to him for the fourth beast and the little horn. Because next week, that won't be the point. We're going to look at it because it builds up our point and it points us to the right thing. Biblical prophecy will always point us to God's glory and he has never been more glorified than in Jesus. If we are allowing the scripture to direct us to the glory of God, we will become more and more enamored with seeing Jesus Christ, with seeing our Savior. And we're going to see him in this chapter. With events taking place this coming Tuesday, I think this passage in Daniel encourages, encourages us in a really fresh way. We need to remember that God's in control. Even if things don't go our way, whatever way that is. And I've seen and heard more differing opinions on this than any other election season in my entire life. You guys... The key thing is that we're not putting our hope in it. Do we have a say in it? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Do we really? Do we really? I think there's an American delusion that as people who vote, which is a good thing, don't get me wrong, it's a good thing, that we have control. This idea that we vote and therefore we control it gives us this ideology that we actually are telling God how things are going to work in our country. And I'll tell you this, he was doing things in the lives of his people all throughout history. And, and let me, let me just ask you this. As you read the Bible, as you read through the scriptures, how often do you feel like the Hebrews were in control? <laughs> how often do you feel like the other nations were really running the show? And it's funny because we look and go, but we're an American nation. Be like, that's a name to God. And it's not his name. I love this country. I absolutely do. But you guys, it, it's, it's a great place to live. But it's not my home. This is not my home. My home's with the Lord. I want to be wherever he is. I want to be in his presence forevermore. And you know what? Someday... That kingdom's coming here. And that's the ruler I want. I wish Jesus was on the ballot on Tuesday. I really do. I really do. 
<laughs> and I'm sure there are people that are going to do that. They're going to write in Jesus. You guys, you know what? You know what's awesome? It's so good that it's not for us to say. It's so good that it's not for us to say. It teaches us to trust. It teaches us to hope. And it reminds us that he's going to do it in his timing. And that's what's best. He's going to do it when he wants to. When it's his timing. Can I encourage you, church, with a passage of scripture? Would you close your eyes with me? Let's do this like a prayer. Let's close our eyes together. I'm going to read this to you and we're going to worship. And, and, and Lord, just as, as we so desperately, God, need to hope in you and trust in you, our eyes wander. We begin to think that we can build ourselves up in some way. We can strengthen ourselves in some way. And Lord, there is some things that we can do. <laughs> or I think of Paul telling Timothy, bodily exercise profits a little. It's not that it's of no profit, but God, that, that we would remember that the things that truly matter, Lord, these are things that we have to entrust to you. And as we look at our future and our hope, may these words encourage us like they never have before. From Isaiah 40, do you not know have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There's no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Lord, you are our strength. And we trust in you. Lord, next week as we consider Lord, just what things are going to look like in the end. Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't be able to get the image of you that we'll see in this chapter out of our minds. It's powerful, sovereign, a loving Savior. So we trust in you because you renew our strength. Allow us to run and not be weary. Enable us and strengthen us to walk and not faint. 